in our study of Galatians, as we have been. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, that's on page 1239. Over the last couple of weeks, as we've gotten into chapter 5, we've been looking at Paul's kind of transitional section, uh, a way out of the purely theological, the head knowledge theology of chapters 3 and 4, to dealing more, in, as he will in chapters 5 and 6, with the application with the practical Christian ethics application of the truths that we believe, where the rubber meets the road. This morning, we draw the threads that we've been looking at, the threads of theology together, into a thesis statement for the whole of this final section on ethics. I think we'll see that the central thesis that Paul lands on is pretty surprising, given the argument that Paul has been making over the last four chapters. As always, though, we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us through His Word. If you're able, please stand while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Galatians 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to You, we come to Your Word, because only in it will we find truth. But our sin is so great. It has poisoned our hearts and our minds so much that if You do not restrain us, We will not understand, we will not take it to heart, and we will not obey. And so, Lord Jesus, send us your Spirit today. Peel the scales back from our eyes that we might see clearly. Give us hearts of flesh in place of our hearts of stone that we might love what we see, that we see you in, your Word. And Lord, give us freed wills freed from slavery to sin and self, that we might live what you have taught us in your word. Glorify yourself this morning in the reading and the preaching of your word, and glorify yourself in our lives as we go out and live it out. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from chapter 5. We're going to be focused starting in verse 13, but I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter just to give us the context. This is God's word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in a single word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. If you have seen the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie, from, you know, the, the first of the 15 or whatever that there were in the series, but the first one, you might remember the scene early in the movie where Elizabeth Swan, Kira Knightley's character, is trying to get these undead that we don't know are undead, but these pirates to leave the town and never come back. And she does that by invoking the pirate's code. She does it to get an audience with the captain, and she does, in fact, do that. She gets an audience with the captain of the ship, and she negotiates for a cessation of hostilities that the pirates would leave. But in the end, it doesn't go the way she was hoping, does it? And finally, she protests and says, what about the code? And the captain turns and responds to her, well, the code is really what you'd more call guidelines than actual rules. A couple of years ago, uh, a group of friends decided to hike the Shoshone, Shoshone Geyser Basin up in Yellowstone. And when they did it, they tried to be prepared to plan ahead for all uh, contingencies, even for unexpected contingencies. But they hadn't prepared for fines, probation, and a temporary ban from the park. Eventually, three of them would plead guilty to the minor offense of foot travel in a thermal area after they were discovered by park rangers trying to, wait for it, cook their food in the park's hot springs. A park representative said this, a ranger responded and found two whole chickens in a burlap sack in a hot spring. The ranger found the group and questioned them about their behavior before issuing citations. According to this representative, the laws in place that prohibit access beyond designated areas are there to protect not only the park itself, but to protect the public as well. Hot spring waters, can, as I understand, can get up to as high as 400 degrees Fahrenheit and can cause severe burns and even be fatal. Last year, for example, a three-year-old girl suffered second-degree burns when she fell into one of the hydrothermal areas. A few years earlier, in 2016, a 23-year-old man fell in and eventually died from his burns. It's a dangerous area. The, the, the rules are in place to protect the public as well as the park. But one of the men who was trying to cook that turkey in the hot spring, one of the men says that he and his friends did their best to be careful, double-checking uh, that the chickens were inside a roasting bag and a burlap sack, so that, you know, doubled it up so that they wouldn't contaminate the springs. He said, the way that I interpreted the rules was, don't be destructive. And I didn't think I was. Another member of the group says he saw the signage indicating that they were in a closed area, but didn't think the signs applied to the hot springs themselves though he agreed that the group wasn't doing any damage. Apparently, the law of the land is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. Or to put it another way, it's only illegal if you get caught. Now, in Galatians so far, Paul has been arguing against the deeply flawed understanding of the law, that, uh, uh, the law of Moses excuse me, articulated by the Judaizers. Uh, namely, that you have to keep the law perfectly and completely and faithfully if you want access to Christ at all. That the essence of salvation, the essence of our justification is not, or excuse me, is law-keeping plus Christ. 
You keep the law and you add a little bit of Christ and that gets you the full justification. Paul here has very clearly said again and again that justification is not Christ plus law-keeping, but Christ alone. As the Reformers would put it many years later, of course, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There ain't none of you or me in that except as recipients. Justification is accomplished wholly by Christ's work given to us and not in any part by our work meriting it or earning it. But given that reality, what are we supposed to do with the law now? Should we just tear the whole Old Testament out of the Bible, chuck it because it no longer, no longer has any validity or point for us? The answer to that is no, just so you know. Um, Maybe we should put it on a library shelf and, you know, it's there for academic study in case we want to know what it was like before Jesus, but it doesn't really apply to our lives today. The answer to that also is no. Uh, that's God's Word. It is the record of God's faithfulness to His people and to the world, and we must not discard it and we must not ignore it as irrelevant. But what do we do with it? What are we supposed to do with the law? How do we understand the role of the law in the life of of the Christian. That's that is the question that is the focus of chapters 5 and 6. It is not enough simply to reject false teaching. Now that's certainly necessary, but it's not sufficient. As we dig into, or as, as we start to look at this, it's not enough simply to reject false teaching. We must also articulate a right understanding of the law. Replace the false teaching not with nothing, but with a true understanding of the place of the law in the life of the Christian. Paul is giving us, starting here and leading through the rest of Galatians, Paul is giving us a theology of the law, an explanation of how the law is supposed to work. In the life of a Christian. The law doesn't justify us. That's clear. And we do not justify ourselves by the law. But that doesn't mean it has no value or no purpose whatsoever in our lives today. I've mentioned this quote before, but it bears repeating. Uh, Robertson McQuilkin was the professor uh, and eventually president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina. Uh, he was known for repeating in his, uh, in his lectures, it is easier to go to the logical extreme than it is to stay in the center of biblical tension. It's easier to go to the logical extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. It's hard to stay on the road that Scripture lays out. It is easy to fall in a ditch on one side or the other. And once we've fallen in the ditch on this side it's, and clawed our way back out, it's easy to mistake and go the other way instead of landing right in the middle of the road. In the first section of chapter 5, Paul was very clearly arguing against a legalistic understanding of the law. Look at verse 1. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the ditch that the Judaizers and honestly most of the Jewish world at the time and frankly much of the Christian world since then. That's the ditch that most of the people of God fall into most of the time is trying to earn salvation by our law keeping keeping the law accomplishes righteousness and God will accept you if you just do enough of the law keeping 
We've talked extensively about this over the last several months, how it completely misses the point of the law to begin with, uh, misses our relationship to the law. But there's another ditch that we have to avoid as well. We can fall into, if, as we see the ditch of legalism and try to move away from that, we end up falling into a ditch on the other side of the road too. And the, uh, the, the ditch of antinomianism or license or licentiousness. It's the idea that because we are not saved by keeping the law, therefore we have no need to pay any attention at all to the law. In the extreme form, it says, well, when we sin, God gives us grace. Therefore, let's sin more that grace will increase. Grace is good. More grace is better. Let's sin more, and that will cause us to get more grace. Woohoo! let's go. In our passage this morning, Paul clearly shows that this idea, too, is a false understanding both of grace and of the law. Where in verse 1, he reminded the Galatians that it was for freedom Christ set us free. In verse 13, he reiterates that we are called to freedom, but then warns us not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. While Paul, just to understand that term, while Paul can use the word flesh to mean just the physical reality of our lives, the, the nature of the body uh, in which we experience the world, uh, which is morally neutral, of course. In, in this place, it is short for, effectively, our sin nature. Very much not neutral. The desire to be wholly independent, to make our own rules, to live beholden to none. The ideal of throwing off all external controls and doing whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. Paul says, effectively, you may think that's freedom. It is not. It is just another form of slavery. Another way of being inextricably tied to the sin that drags at us, that keeps us from God. He says instead that we should use our freedom, for again, verse 13, through love to serve one another. Our freedom is not so that we can do whatever we want. Our freedom, we are freed so that we can serve each other through love. And then he gets genuinely shocking, given how hard he has fought, how hard he has railed against the Judaizers and their seeming love of the law and demand that we keep the law. Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in a single word or single command, commandment. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. We've heard this before, right? Jesus quoted this answer when he was challenged on God's greatest commandments. He says the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, quoting from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul effectively says, you are called for freedom, therefore keep the law. Wait, what now? That's bonkers, Paul. Keeping the law is the exact opposite of freedom. What are you on about? Here's the thinking. Keeping the law as a means of justifying yourself is the opposite of freedom. But not for the reason that we usually think. We typically think that the problem is the law keeping. That we are enslaved to the law. And there may be a sense in which that, that's true, but the reality, the fuller reality is that when we are trying to keep the law to justify ourselves, we are enslaved 
to self. We are enslaved to ourselves. I had a pastor years ago who said, our problem is that we have a selfish, self-centered focus on self. That's who we are. When we keep the law as a means of justifying ourselves, as a means of earning favor with the Lord, then any time we do something that is objectively good, that someone from outside of our own heads would look at and say, oh, you did a good thing, you're keeping the law there. Anytime we do something that is objectively good, then every good thing we do is done purely for my own benefit because I'm doing it so that I'll earn favor with the Lord. I'm doing it to earn salvation from God. I'm not doing it to care for you. I'm doing it to care for me. Even the good that I do is done in service of my own self. I am motivated purely by my own desire to justify myself. It is not fundamentally because I care about anyone else, but simply because I want to save myself from hell. Helping you gets me just that little bit closer to that goal. Trying to earn your salvation by law-keeping is purely and only uh, slavery to self. Okay, so how is Christianity different? What is the freedom that we are called to in Christ if it is not freedom from slavery to the law? Anytime we talk about freedom in any context, we have to ask freedom from what? Freedom to what? What are we freed from? What are we freed to? We must always define what it is we're talking about. Christian freedom is freedom from being enslaved to myself, enslaved to my selfishness, enslaved to my selfish, self-centered focus on self. It is freedom to serve others with a whole heart. It is freedom to keep the law of God. That's counterintuitive, right? We think we are freed from keeping the law of God. We are freed from justifying ourselves by the law and falling further and further behind every time. We are freed to keep the law rightly. Ultimately, Christian freedom is freedom to keep God's perfect law rightly, unselfishly. The law is good. The law is eternal. Why? Because the law is nothing more or less than a summation of the character of God. God is good, and so the law is good. God does not change. God is eternal, and so the law is eternal. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Before the law was given to Moses, the law summarizing the character of God was already in effect. Else, just as one example, why was Cain punished for killing Abel, centuries before the law was given to Moses. What's the problem? There was no law to break. Unless it is the character of God. The law is present. The law is active. The law is incumbent on God's creation wherever God is present and active and creating. Which is to say everywhere. Don't hear what I'm not saying. 
Part of the Old Testament legal code states principles. Other parts apply those principles to specific contexts, to specific situations. The laws concerning sacrifice and civil governance of the kingdom of Israel apply the principles to those specific realms, to the realm of religious worship in the Old Testament, in in Old Testament Israel, to the realm of civil governance in Old Testament Israel. But those are applications of the principle, not the principles themselves. In those contexts, the Lord fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law, the principles that we see primarily summed up in the Ten Commandments, those do still apply. We are not saved by them. We are not made right in God's eyes by keeping the moral law. Do not hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you are saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. That is not the point. But the Ten Commandments still apply. They have not been abrogated or torn down or thrown away. Trying to keep them to earn a place before the Lord is entering in again to slavery to self. If you are not made right in God's eyes by keeping, excuse me, if, if someone does something for you that you know they're only doing to make themselves look good, you may appreciate the benefit that accrues to you because of the good thing that they did, you're probably not going to be disposed to appreciate the person who used doing good for you as a way to promote themselves. Trying to justify yourself by law-keeping is just another way of trying to use God to promote yourself as a good guy, trying to promote your own brand, as it were. And as bad as that is when it's a human who actually needs the help, when we're helping another person that actually needs help, but really we're using them to make myself feel better about myself or make myself look better in somebody else's eyes, as bad as that is when it's a human who actually needs help, it is abhorrent to the Lord who doesn't need a thing from us. There was a time in in Old Testament Israel when the, the children of Israel began to think that all of those sacrifices were food for God, just like the Canaanites around them, the sacrifices were food for the Lord. And the Lord looks at that and he says, you think I eat that stuff? If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. That's Psalm 50 or 51, I forget. It is abhorrent to the Lord when we try to do something good for him as if he needs it from us so that we can make ourselves look better. We are just using God to do something for me. We cannot be justified by keeping the law. But now that we have been justified by Christ, now that we have been freed from slavery to self, we are freed to pursue what pleases the Lord who saved us, the Lord who made us right. We are freed to look for what he loves and to delight in what he loves, delight in doing what pleases him as he revealed it to us in his law. Christian freedom is the freedom to keep God's law rightly. It is the freedom to please the Lord in the manner that the Lord has directed. But how does that work? How are we freed and how does our freedom result in keeping God's law? Some people over the years and over the centuries really have gotten on Paul's case a little because he quotes the second greatest commandment but not the first. 
Uh, he says the whole law is found in loving your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say anything about loving the Lord. Well, does Paul not care about loving the Lord? I mean, what's going on, Paul? You skipped half of the commandments. What's going on there? Here's the thing. Paul doesn't need to specifically reference the first great commandment, the first table of the law, the law about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because the two are inextricable. You can't. You literally are not able to. You cannot love your neighbor as you love yourself if you have not first loved the Lord with all your being. If you have not loved God wholly, reveling in the mercy and the grace given to you through Christ's death on the cross and pursuing what pleases him above all else in all things, all the time, your whole life, if you haven't started there, you are literally incapable of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You may be able to do nice things for your neighbor. You may be able to do nice things for your family or your friends. You might be a nice guy. You might be a kind person. You may be a philanthropist and do all sorts of wonderful things. But all those wonderful things will be tainted, will be poisoned by your need to make yourself good in someone else's eyes, whether that's God's eyes or, some, or the world's eyes or whatever. Your good works will be tainted by that desire to make yourself look good. as a, a local example think of our mormon neighbors y'all they are great at doing nice things they are great at taking care of stuff at taking care of people in the area doing nice things for people but those nice things done for others are really done purely in the service of to put it just crassly getting enough holiness points to get into the celestial heaven they do nice things to accrue points, to get holiness so that they will get into the highest level as they understand it of heaven. For all that the actions that they do are often objectively good things, objectively nice things, they are done in service of self. If you're not loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you literally can't love your neighbor as you love yourself. On the other hand, if you are loving the Lord with all of your being, you can't help loving your neighbor as yourself. You can't avoid it. You, because loving the Lord in his rightful place in our lives as king and God over us, loving him with all of our being, changes who we are and how we interact with the world. It frees us from slavery to ourselves where Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or as a reason or base of operations for sin, but rather through love, serve one another and in so doing, fulfill the law of God. Again, how? What does that actually look like? The story is told uh, of a man who, on the surface at least, seems to embody this. He uh, pulled a person from a flaming vehicle while he was in South Korea. He served on President Trump's security detail during the historic North Korean summit. He played a pivotal role in the rescue of the junior soccer team from Thailand and even uh, saved the life of a Thai Navy SEAL. In recognition of those acts, uh, U.S. Air Force Tech Sergeant Kenneth O'Brien was named one of a dozen or so Outstanding Airmen of the Year. Japanese-based airmen, uh, 
His resume didn't end there. On the flight back to the United States so that he could receive that award, O'Brien noticed a one-year-old choking, and he immediately sprang into action, clearing the child's breathing passage and performing CPR. He said, I am thankful the child is okay and that I was able to help when the family needed support. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Thing is, O'Brien seems to be in the right place at the right time a lot. But maybe the uncanny number of heroic opportunities has nothing to do with luck. In an interview, he said, had this to say, if someone needs to do something dangerous, I volunteer. If someone needs a leader, I volunteer. I happen to be in the right place at the right time, and that's what helped me stand out because I sought out key positions and key responsibilities. He happens to be in the right place at the right time because he put himself in situations where he could be used. He volunteered and found himself being used. Now, on the one hand, that's excellent, right? There, he put himself where he could be used for great things. He volunteers for duties and activities where there's a good chance of being useful, of caring for others and loving his neighbor. And there's a couple of good principles here. First, be where there are people with needs. Go where people need things. Be there. Second, while you're there, keep your eyes open. Be on the lookout for someone with an immediate need right away. We are, and, and, and as you're there, keep your eyes open and let the Lord use you as he will. We can, we're perfectly capable of drifting through life, um, doing what's easy and not paying attention to what's going on around us unless it literally slaps us in the face. Or, we can intentionally choose to be places where there may be a need, and even more important, pay attention wherever we are to look for needs, looking for ways to fulfill the law of God, the ways to fulfill the law of love, ways to love our neighbor as ourself. And these are good principles. Keep your eyes open and put yourself where there are needs. But at the same time, there's an assumption implicit in our thinking, and even, honestly, I hesitated whether or not to use that as an illustration because there's an assumption as we look at that that can actually lead us astray we tend to think that we are only serving the lord that we are only caring well for people if the situation is dramatic and life-threatening if it's the kind of thing that will get written about and reported on the news now certainly if you find yourself in a dramatic rescue from a life-threatening situation it's a big deal you should be paying attention to that but that's also, let's be honest, pretty incredibly rare. That's not the kind of thing that we encounter day in and day out. You are not called to love your neighbor as you love yourself only when their life is in danger. Any more than you're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength only when your life is in danger. You are called to both love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself always. Sacrificing your selfish desires, sacrificing your selfish plans, even sacrificing your needs to an extent to demonstrate to, in fact, live out your love for your neighbor. The way to live that out, the way to fulfill the law of love in our lives, in our regular lives, is in the quiet, mundane, ordinary, 
never going to be written about in a newspaper ways. I read another story this week about where the, the author was describing how his, uh, his father, who's now elderly, had a stroke. Uh, he had been before the stroke, he had loved his yard and t- taken great care of it. But after the stroke, even though he was going to be able to care for himself, mostly wasn't going to be able to do anything in the yard. He just had lost the ability to do that. Um, but his next door neighbor, who also happened to be a member of the same church, took it on herself without being asked to come and mow the lawn. To help him in that way, to love him in that way. And three years later, she is still faithfully mowing that lawn every week. Now, no one's going to write a news story about somebody mowing somebody else's lawn. It's just not going to happen. But what a testimony of faithful love for a neighbor, glorifying God in small ways, in small things, that again, not going to get published anywhere. This type of simple, quiet, faithful love is something that in Christ we both have the ability and the opportunity to step into all the time. We want to be found faithful in big, dramatic, neon letters things. World-shaking ways. But we are called to pursue faithfulness, to pursue the love of our neighbor in small things. And that's what we're going to see as we dig into the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. As we, as we look at where Paul goes with this, he's primarily looking at the daily mundanities, the ordinary stuff of our lives. And how do we love our neighbor as we love ourselves in that ordinary stuff? As someone famously said, we are saved by faith alone, but it is never a faith that is alone. The gospel frees us from the strict, harsh, destructive requirement to keep the law for the sake of salvation. The gospel frees us to keep the law as an expression of our delight in and love for the Lord who has redeemed us. Our desire to please him now that he has given us salvation wholly apart from our working. And in fact, in spite of all of our striving. There's a a Scottish pastor years ago uh, named Erskine uh, wrote a, this is the 1800s, early 1800s when writing poems was kind of a normal thing people did, Uh, but he wrote this this poem talking about the, the law and the gospel and what the interaction is, and he ended it this way. He said, a rigid master was the law, demanding bricks, denying straw, demanding what it did not provide a way to do, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it, the law, sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. When the law speaks through the gospel, not as a means of salvation, but as a response to the gospel, the salvation that we have received. It bids us fly and gives us all the means to do so. The law is where the gospel leads as a response. This is how we live out what God has given us. This is how we live out our love for the Lord and our love for our neighbor is by pursuing what he has shown us through his law. 
This is what, where Christian ethics is based. This is the so-called third use of the law that as Christians, we turn back to the law to understand what it means to live as a Christian in the world. Not to earn salvation. Please don't hear me say that. But now that you have it, how shall we then live? What will it look like to be a Christian in the world? When we pursue that, our lives will look radically different from the world because we will be living not for self, but for Christ and for our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have revealed your character to us in your law. We pray, Lord, as we fail to measure up always, as we fall so far short of the fullness of your command, yet, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit at work in us, you would cause us to pursue your face and your delight as we pursue your law. Let your name be praised as we crucify self in us and live holy for you as we are freed from slavery to self, freed to live for you, to live out the law of love, loving you with all that we are, and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. We will not succeed in any way in that if you do not work it in us. So we beg you by your Spirit, because of the blood of your Son, work your good your good purposes, your good nature, your character even, into us that we might be made new in the image of your Son. Do this in us that your name would be praised, that your gospel would be proclaimed, that your people would expand. Change our lives by the law of love. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.